Hello, and welcome to the second episode in our Real Estate Conversation series of podcasts. I'm Darren Buck from our business development team here at Collier Bristow. I'm joined today by Anjana Dyer, an associate in our commercial real estate team. Today, Anjana will be talking about break clause conditions in the context of a commercial lease. Thanks, Darren. Yes, I'll be discussing break clauses with a specific focus on the conditions that must be satisfied in order to exercise a break right. I'll also look at the interaction of break clauses with other lease provisions. There'll be some mention of case law and other technical points, but hopefully this podcast will also give a general overview of things to be aware of when parties are drafting, negotiating and looking to satisfy the break conditions. To start things off, I'll just briefly go over what a break clause actually is and why it's important for landlords and tenants alike. As a brief introduction, what is a break clause and why would it be a useful clause to incorporate into a lease? So a break clause is a very specific lease clause that allows a landlord or a tenant the contractual right to terminate the lease on a date that is earlier than the expiry of the term. There may be practical, financial or other reasons why each party may not want to continue with a tenancy, which would make having a break clause desirable. A break right might be exercised on fixed dates during a term or it might be a rolling break, which is exercisable at any time. Any conditions that are attached to a break clause must be strictly observed, as is evidenced by a vast amount of case law on the subject. It's also important to note that time is of the essence with respect to any time limits imposed in the break clause. So what are the typical break clause conditions that may be imposed on tenants? So most, if not all, break clauses contain a condition that the tenant must have paid all of the rent that's due under the lease before the break date. Some attention should be given here as to how the rent is defined and whether it's to be interpreted as meaning just the principal or annual rent, or whether it includes other payments that are reserved as rent. For example, insurance rent, service charge, VAT and outgoings. It's probably useful to note here that the Code for Leasing Business Premises in England and Wales 2020, otherwise known as the Lease Code, contains compulsory requirements and best practice guidelines for agents and landlords who are RICS regulated members or firms. The Lease Code states that the tenant's break right should not be conditional on the requirement that any monies other than the basic rent are paid by the break date, unless the parties have agreed otherwise at the heads of term stage. Another point to note is that if a break clause requires a tenant to make all payments due under the lease, this could include default interest on late payments, even if the landlord has not actually demanded that interest from the tenant. In a 2011 High Court case, the level of interest in question, which resulted in the tenant being considered to have failed in performance of the payment condition, was a mere £130. A tenant may consider amending the relevant condition to state that it should only make such payments that the landlord has demanded in writing not less than, for example, one month before the break date. This would allow the tenant sufficient notice and therefore time to collect and pay over all the funds that are necessary to meet the condition. Generally speaking, the payment of rent must be made on time and in the absence of an express provision or the habitual receipt of a landlord by a different method, it should be paid by cash. The tenant should also take care not to be lulled into a false sense of security by a condition that requires the payment of rents reserved and demanded by the lease up to the termination date. There is case law from 2012 from the High Court that focuses on this type of wording and which reinforces previous case law, which states that rent cannot be apportioned up to the break date. This means that, where a lease requires quarterly rental payments, the tenant must pay the full quarter's rent to validly break the lease, even if the break date falls in the middle of the quarter. Well, that seems quite harsh on a tenant. Um, What should a tenant do if required to pay a full quarter's rent in such circumstances? Um, For instance, is there any hope of getting the post-break portion of the rent back? Well, an express refund clause must be inserted into the break provisions, so that even if the tenant is required to pay a full quarter's rent in advance of the break date, and the break date is in the middle of a quarter, there'll be no uncertainty that the tenant will be repaid the proportion of the rent which relates to the period after the break has been exercised. 
There has been Supreme Court case law where, in the absence of such express wording, the landlord was entitled to keep the rent that was paid by the tenant that was attributable to the period after the break. Generally speaking, it's also important to note that a condition that the tenant has paid all the rent and performed all the tenant covenants and conditions in the lease is generally considered to be an absolute condition. This means that the tenant will be unlikely to successfully exercise the break if there is a subsisting breach of that condition, no matter how trivial the breach is. This can be contrasted with a qualified break condition, which I'll come back to shortly in the podcast. Just briefly as well on the subject of payments to be made by the tenant. A break clause can also occasionally contain a requirement to pay a break premium or a break penalty instead of, for example, a break condition that requires compliance with the tenant's lease covenants, or perhaps to reflect the initial rent-free period that benefited the tenant at the start of the lease term. It may also be agreed that the tenant will pay a financial settlement to cover any dilapidations costs and to release the tenant from the break conditions. Any draft wording to document such payments should be scrutinised carefully by each party's solicitors to ensure that their client's main objectives are being achieved in such circumstances. Okay, so apart from the payment of rents, what other kind of break conditions are usually imposed on the tenant? Well, tenant break clauses can often contain a condition that the tenant must give vacant possession of the premises on the break date. The test for vacant possession is demanding and requires the removal of tenants' goods and chattels, the tenant's fixtures if required under the lease, the return of keys and the absence of any employees, staff, subtenants or other occupants. In essence, a tenant must refrain from doing anything that implies that he is continuing use of the property or anything that could substantially interfere with the landlord's possession and enjoyment of the premises following the break. The reference to vacant possession is therefore one that's often resisted due to its owner's nature. Tenants commonly require amendments to the effect that they must simply give up the property free from subsisting underleases or other third-party rights of occupation on the break date. Several cases have focused on the vacant possession condition in the context of a break clause. The courts have previously considered, for example, whether the vacant possession condition was not complied with because of the presence of workmen or security guards left behind by tenants after the break date. In another case, the tenant had failed to remove demountable partitioning after it had moved out of the premises, and the High Court considered such partitioning to be chattels, which interfered with the landlord's right of possession following the break. There's also been consideration of the overlap between the requirement to give vacant possession in a break clause and compliance with the usual reinstatement obligations that are contained elsewhere in a lease. A 2018 High Court case considered the latter, where there was in fact a reference to the general reinstatement obligations in the break provisions of the lease. It was held that based on the wording of the break clause in question, there was not a dual obligation on the tenant to provide both vacant possession and to yield up the property in compliance with the more general reinstatement obligations contained in the lease. Interestingly, in that case, the tenant had cleverly brought a civil procedure rule or CPR Part 8 claim in order to obtain a court's declaration, so that it would know in advance what exactly it was required to do in order to affect the break right. In a more recent Court of Appeal case from 2020, it was held that, rather than being concerned with the physical condition of the property, a condition for vacant possession required the tenant to return the property to the landlord free from people, chattels and legal interests. So apart from the vacant possession condition, in what other circumstances might a tenant seek to amend the specific wording of a break condition? So another fairly common break condition may state something along the lines of the tenant not having any subsisting breaches of the tenant covenants and conditions in the lease as at the break date. I mentioned qualified break conditions earlier, as opposed to absolute break conditions. So a tenant could look to try and dilute the challenging nature of such a break condition by the use of qualifying language, such as there being no material or no substantial breaches instead. According to case law from 2006, which considered a tenant's compliance with its repair covenant, The word substantial and material were considered to be interchangeable, depending on the context. 
Materiality is tested by the ability of the landlord to relet or sell the property without delay or additional cost. Interestingly, what's considered to be fair and reasonable between the landlord and the tenant is not a deciding factor. Another qualifying phrase is reasonable compliance, which means that a tenant must have behaved during the tenancy in a way that a reasonably minded tenant might well behave. When considering reasonable compliance, the tenant's performance over the whole of the lease term can be considered, rather than just the tenant's behaviour at the time of the break. In the 2006 case, a number of issues were ignored, including the fact that the tenant had taken all reasonable steps to put and keep the property in repair, had spent a sizable sum of money, and had tried, albeit unsuccessfully, to engage the landlord in discussions as to what it would regard as compliance with the repairing obligations. However, overall, the Court of Appeal concluded that there were few outstanding defects, which were not substantial in nature or value. Each breach was trivial, and even when viewed cumulatively, the overall effect was still minor and didn't adversely affect the landlord's ability to negotiate fresh lease terms with a new tenant. So it seems that a lot of pressure is on tenants to get the wording on the break conditions right for them, and also to be able to ultimately comply with the break conditions. Apart from the potential difficulties in satisfying the break conditions, which could be off-putting, is there any other reason why the tenant may wish to just continue the lease at the break date and so not exercise its break right? Well, it may simply be that the tenant's business is operating well at the premises, and so it's happy to continue there for the time being. The landlord and tenant relationship may also be amicable enough that the parties would like it to persist until at least the end of the contractual lease term, after which they may consider a lease renewal. However, there could be other incentives for the tenant not to break the lease. It may, for example, have been agreed in the break clause that the tenant may get an extra rent-free period or a reduced rent for a specific time if it does not exercise the break right. In effect, this would be a financial incentive for the tenant to remain in occupation, and the landlord would also be assured of keeping the tenant and its ultimate rental income stream until the expiry of the lease term. That's interesting. There seems to be a lot that's been considered regarding tenant break conditions. What about conditions that are imposed on the landlord in a break clause? So most commonly, a condition for a landlord's right to break is that the landlord must be intending to redevelop the property. For leases that are not excluded from the security of tenure provisions of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954, otherwise known as the 54 Act, it's safest to use the wording prescribed in Section 30, Subsection 1F of that Act. Generally, this wording requires that the landlord intends to demolish or reconstruct the premises comprised in the holding, or a substantial part of those premises, or to carry out substantial work of construction on the holding. The section also requires that the landlord could not reasonably do so without obtaining possession of the holding. Okay, so what about the relationship between break clauses and other provisions of a lease? So there is some interplay between break clauses and other clauses within a lease. For example, break dates are often linked to rent review dates, so that if the revised rent is potentially too high for a tenant, the tenant has the ability to break the lease. As mentioned earlier, time is of the essence for a break clause, so this link will generally also make time of the essence regarding time limits imposed in a rent review clause. A prudent tenant might then insist that it's expressly stated in the lease whether or not the break clause makes time of the essence in relation to a rent review. Practically speaking, the rent review process may not be concluded by the break date, even if it is the same as a review date but the tenant may have a rough idea as to what the revised rent will be based on initial discussions with the landlord or with the rent review surveyor. Break clauses can also impact valuations on a rent review, and parties should make sure that they're well advised on this point and understand how references to the break right in the rent review provisions may have any such effect. Another clause that may need to be considered is the clause on underlettings. Generally speaking, if a superior lease is terminated by a break clause, then that will also terminate the underlease. However, if an underlease is protected by security of tenure under the 54 Act, a statutory tenancy will arise on termination of the underlease. The undertenant can then request a renewal lease from the superior landlord by way of Section 26 of the 54 Act. We'd spoken before about the vacant possession condition. 
A well-advised landlord would probably want to ensure that a lease with a break clause includes an express condition that vacant possession of the property is given to the landlord, or at the very least, that the tenant gives up occupation and leaves behind no continuing subleases. This would mean that the tenant would not be considered to have satisfied such a condition if any undertenant were to remain in occupation following the break. For further protection, a landlord should insist on a requirement that any underlease is contracted out of the 54 Act, that it is not granted for a term that extends beyond the break date, and additionally, that it contains a break clause that must be exercised by the superior tenant, i.e. as the undertenant's landlord, before or at the same time as the break clause in the superior lease. Exclusion of the lease from the 54 Act is also an issue to consider for reasons other than in the context of an underlease. In a 54 Act excluded lease, the lease will terminate on exercise of a break clause in accordance with the lease terms. A tenant or a landlord simply has to serve the break notice to bring the lease to an end and ensure compliance with the break conditions. In a 54 Act protected tenancy, i.e. a lease that has not been excluded, this can only be terminated in accordance with Part 2 of the 54 Act. A tenant's break notice in these circumstances is considered a notice to quit for the purposes of Section 24 of that Act. A tenant cannot then serve a Section 26 notice for a new tenancy if it serves a notice to quit, and their break notice will therefore terminate the lease. In a protected tenancy, the landlord's break notice will end the contractual lease in accordance with its terms. However, a statutory tenancy under Part 2 of the 54 Act will arise once the contractual lease ends. The landlord therefore also has to serve a Section 25 notice on the tenant under the 54 Act in order to terminate the statutory tenancy. For this reason, it can be rare to see a landlord's break clause in a protected lease. Notice clauses are also important to consider in the context of break provisions. A break clause may contain specific requirements for the form and service of a break notice, as opposed to a more generic notice clause that is contained elsewhere in the lease. It's important to note that a failure to serve a valid break notice can be detrimental to a tenant. In a leading 1997 Supreme Court, then known as the House of Laws case, which considered whether a break notice given by the tenant was effective, Lord Hoffman's now famous observation was that, if the termination clause had said that the notice had to be on blue paper, it would have been no good serving a notice on pink paper, however clear it might have been that the tenant wanted to terminate. This case ultimately gave rise to what's known as the Manai principle, which is that minor defects in contractual notices will not necessarily invalidate a notice if a reasonable recipient would not have been perplexed in any way by the error. However, as a general rule, and perhaps simply for the sake of good order, any notice and service provisions in a break clause should be strictly observed, so that both landlords and tenants can avoid any dispute about the effectiveness of the break notice later down the line. Other clauses that should be considered when exercising a break right are the general yielding up provisions, which deal with the return of the property to the landlord at the end of the lease. These often deal with the reinstatement of alterations and the stating condition of the property when it is handed back at the end of the term. I spoke earlier about the 2018 case law, which held that the tenant did not have a double obligation to provide vacant possession and to comply with the reinstatement obligations in order to effectively exercise the break right. Though it seems that the courts may then have previously leaned towards vacant possession and reinstatement being two distinctive obligations, again, it would probably be sensible to pay heed to what's expected of the tenant in the general yielding up provisions in the lease. This is particularly important if the reinstatement obligations are expressed to apply to the tenant at the end of the term of the lease, howsoever it ends, which is often the case, and so would be relevant anyway, even if the lease ended by exercise of a break right, as opposed to the expiry of time or other means. Well, it sounds like there is a fair amount for commercial parties to consider with respect to break conditions and other provisions that can interact with break clauses. Yes, that's correct. There are several aspects of a break clause that need to be considered carefully by the parties. In particular, landlords and tenants need to review the precise wording of the break conditions and the practical implications when it comes to satisfying those conditions at the break date. It's best, of course, to take professional legal advice at the drafting stage, and reference should be made to the relevant statutes, case law, and official best practice guidelines in order to make an informed decision when agreeing the break provisions. I hope that this has been useful in giving an overall sense of what key issues are at play during the negotiation and performance of break conditions in the lease. 
So thank you for joining me, Darren. And of course, thank you very much to all of our listeners as well. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in this podcast, you can find my contact details on our website or in the description of the podcast on whichever platform you're using. Thank you.